Hello and welcome to The Melting Pot. I'm your host, Dominic Monkhouse. The Melting Pot is a result of my hunger for optimising business performance. Scaling up organisations, corporate culture, customer addiction, building high-performing teams, along with a few other obsessions. I've spent the last several years working for and with some of the most successful top-performing companies in the world. And this podcast is my attempt to synthesize what I've learned along the way to help you build a higher quality business and live a more fulfilling life. If you enjoy the podcast, you can find more information on today's episode. We do cracking show notes. They're at dominicmonkhouse.com. Hello, today, no guest, or in fact, I am the guest. Earlier this year, I had the pleasure of interviewing Carla and Imogen from FizzPop Bang, the culture consultancy. And then a little bit later on, I was a guest on their show. So what I'm doing is playing you that. So here I am without any further ado. I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I had recording it. I would love to introduce our guest this month, um, who is... Dominic Monkhouse, um, friend of his pop bang. I first became aware of, of Dom um, when he interviewed our founders, Carla and Imogen, on his very own um, podcast, the Melting Pot podcast. But that podcast is just a tiny little bit of what you do, um, Dom. So just to kick us off, it would be great if you could introduce yourself and tell us all things Dom. Well, what I do today is, as you say, I do a podcast, I do a newsletter and sort of weekly blog post. I work with tech businesses, helping them scale up. So they're businesses that typically are somewhere between 10 and 100 million, and they have an ambitious CEO who who wants to scale. And I guess nobody rings me if everything's going completely smoothly. So for one reason or another, the wheels are starting to wobble or something's not quite right, and they get in touch. And if there's some chemistry, then, then I get to help them. Where are you, Dom? You look like you're in a very interesting space there. Uh, well, we uh, we bought a farm in Wiltshire near Salisbury a few years ago. I love being on the farm. And the reason that I suppose I became a business coach rather than taking another CEO role with another PE-backed tech firm is because just over five years ago, uh, my daughter Allegra was born. And my wife and I sat down and said, well, what are we going to do? And I said, well, I'd really quite like to see her grow up. That would be brilliant. As opposed to not. So making a deliberate decision. And I'd quite like to take it to school at least once a week if I can. So there's that, there's that sort of a deliberate thing around that. But actually, I do like taking the dog out and feeding the cows and the pigs and going for a walk. And a mate of mine said, well, it's all right in the summer, Dom, but wait until it's five o'clock in the morning and it's January and it's fucking freezing. <laughs> like, let's see how much you enjoy it then. But actually, there's no, it's a bit like sailing and skiing. There's no bad weather. There's just bad gear. And so I just get up and I have 40, it's 45 minutes of, sort of meditation i'm on my own the rest of the house is still asleep it feels like the rest of the world is still asleep and that just um sorts it out but even if you've if even if i've gone out and been working all day or been in the office all day again just take the dog out and walk around the fields and make sure the fences haven't fallen down and stuff and that just it's just that sort of total difference of you know you've been sitting down maybe you've been on the phone all day or what have you and you just get up and just go and spend an hour and then you feel energized again. Yeah, I think sort of defining what your 
non-negotiables are a, a really really important aren't they because they just sort of make you who you are and and keep you happy which is which is great yeah just I, well the thing is i you have to deliberately put blocks of time in your diary if you want to do stuff because otherwise it just doesn't happen and so making sure that you know i'm not working the five days that is half term or mm. you know we took i took the family down to sydney for five weeks over christmas so you know just putting that in the diary this year the plan is do you know five weeks in brazil and it's just let's do that okay slightly different question now um who was the biggest or has been the biggest influence on your career that is a hard question because it, it's different people have influenced different bits of it and I've been at it for a little while now, so it's there's quite a lot of it. Probably Vern Harnish, because he wrote a book. Well, he, he had a program called Birthing of Giants that uh, Graham Weston, who was then chairman of Rackspace, was on. And so Graham kept bringing back these tools that he was learning from Vern, one of which was Vern's own stuff, which is Rockefeller Habits. And so at Rackspace, I learned this suite of tools that we use to scale the business so rockefeller habits patrick lencioni's five dysfunctions of a team the work of jim collins and stuff and then in 2014 Vern re-engineered all of that and produced his new book which is called scaling up and so that sort of codifies the work of the best bits of about 50 people 50 authors and so that actually is the tools that i go out and coach my clients on so, you know, you can buy the book and do it yourself or you can hire me or there's 250 of us who do it around the world. And so that inadvertently, Vern was responsible for the success we had at Rackspace that I had. And then I took those tools to IT Lab and Pier One and, and repeated, repeated that success. I was just going to say, tell us a little bit more about your coaching program, Don, as well, because it sounds really interesting. I suppose there's, there's various bits of it. There's, there's a whole culture element because I look at it and go, what, why would people pick me to work with? And I suppose it's because we took Rackspace to 30 million in five years and we turned IT Lab around from oblivion in three months and then made it profitable and got a great customer service and a great culture. And then at Pier 1, we took the business from nothing to 30 million in five years or globally 90 million to 200 million. And it was always about the people and always about the culture because uh, fundamentally what Rackspace and Pier 1 did was plumbing of the internet. So not very interesting things that it did, but we did it in an interesting way. And hopefully clients loved us and, and referred us to other people. So people will go, okay, you've done that before. Maybe you can help me. And I say, yes, but you know, there's a few provisors. I think the CEO has to be, has to be ambitious, but also humble. They've definitely got a drive and, and steel, but they know they don't know everything. So they're probably the type of people who are already reading a dozen books a year or at least half a dozen books a year. So the lifelong learners know they don't know everything. And so that's why they go looking for somebody to help them who might know some of the stuff that they don't know. They're ambitious because to be a scale up, you've got to be growing. I think the definition of, is 20% a year for three years back to back. But some of the guys I work with are you know, disappointed that they're only, that they're not going to grow a hundred percent for four years. This year is only 61% and they're, they're gutted and they're in tech. And to start with, I thought maybe I don't want to be in tech anymore, but actually I realized that, that actually that's part of, that's part of the attraction. And the reason that I do it is that having decided not to run another business, what did I get out of running those companies? And the num the headline numbers are great, but actually I really, on a Friday, if people leave work and go home, having had a great week at work, 
done meaningful, good stuff with other people, what they do is they go home, they take, there's a spillover from the great week they've had into the weekend, you know, and they do great stuff with their wives and kids and their communities. And so you can have a huge impact on the, where you live in the local area. If you run a business, it's just a gift that you have. So in coaching, what I'm looking for is people who are growing fast, but also who have people at the heart of their business. Because you can run a successful business and make money and not give a shit about your people. I'm sure you can. I just don't care to help you be more successful. And certainly we're launching another program in, in October, which will just be for local businesses, uh, smaller local businesses, so that I can have a deliberate impact in locally. Um, that kind of leads us perfectly on to really to, to talking about the kind of the broader subject of, of this month's podcast, which is a, a, around obviously culture, because that's what we are. We're a culture agency, but, and leadership. When you see businesses scaling up, quite often those that start up as a, as a startup and are kind of founder-led and then gradually, gradually start to grow up in numbers, what's the biggest mistake that you see organizations making as they start to kind of burst out of their confines? I would say that in different areas, but the, the thing is the same, it's that they start to think that they have to be more grown up. And then they start to say, well, what does grown up mean? Like we need an annual appraisal scheme or all of their successes come from being a small team. And now they want functions. And so now we're going to have sales and marketing and finance. And now those, and so those functions are going to start to disagree about stuff. And also they don't have, they lose the clarity that they once had. Um, so I was just talking to, um, going up to spend some time with a prospective client tomorrow. And I've just been interviewing their executive team this morning. And you know, they've got challenges around recruitment, talent acquisition and retention. So who on the executive team owns that, right? So they all have this problem, but nobody owns it. So there's, you get this, we have to grow up. And so they start to try and cherry pick things that they've seen in big companies they've been in rather than think, is there a better way to do it? And also there's just a lack of clarity around what they're trying to do and what the most important things are to do when and who's going to be accountable. If that breaks down at the executive team level, then it's impossible for it to exist anywhere else. Because I, I say very clearly to uh, CEOs and their teams, look, your company will never be better than this team. And that this team is your number one team. So if you're the sales director, sales is not your number one priority. The executive team is your number one priority. That is, it, when, you're, when you're in startup mode, it doesn't even cross your mind because it's just like there's just a team, right? And you're all in it together. And everyone wears five hats. And then all of a sudden you get to the point where now you've got sort of functional specialism and you're the finance guy. So I, I don't want to tell you that's your, yours is finance. And it's not, you don't think, I don't think it's the head of sales. It's now my job to have a conversation with you about what's, what I think is wrong in finance. And so people start to defer to each other's expertise. And then often somebody brings me up and goes, we were growing really fast and somehow it's just sort of flattened off or, I can see the customer demand, but we won't survive if we don't fix some stuff. And there's a really interesting tension that you talk about, there, which is, and I love the phrase, it's something that resonates with us, is that you know, people pretending to be grown-ups or we should do something grown-up, which means we need to have departments and processes and procedures, mm -hmm. rather than going, which are the ones that we genuinely need and that will work for us? But there's, a, there's an interesting tension that you talk about then, I'd like to explore a bit more, which is around putting in more stuff, more walls, more definitions, functions, delineations, 
but then as a result of it, people actually taking less responsibility and accountability because it doesn't fit within their pay grade or within their particular job description. I, I just want, want if you could just explore that a bit more for us. I don't think anyone comes to work with a desire to do a crap job. And one of the things that I find still, I find it's counterintuitive to me, but if I look at something like the Gallup's Q12, which is a measure of employee engagement, the first question, and it's a pyramid. So the first question is sort of the, the base of the pyramid and you, the rest of it sort of doesn't matter until you get past it. And it's, I know what's expected of me. And implied in that is at work every day. And so you turn up somewhere and you look at the business and somebody's now doing a job. So in a startup, everybody's looking around for the next thing that's broken, right? And there's just this, all the time, people are just, it's like spinning plates or, you know, working in a busy kitchen. There's just chaos and you just find a thing and fix it and move on. And then, as you say, you start to put in departments and people turn up to work and they don't know what to do. They don't know what they're supposed to do. They don't know how to measure it and nobody's been really clear about. So there's a, you get this breakdown in expectation and departments are then no longer, no longer aligned to customers. And so you can be in the finance department. You're not talking to a customer every day. So you've got your process. And so you start developing your process as it makes sense for you in finance and not as it makes sense for sales or marketing or operations or God forbid the customer. And so this just sort of random bureaucracy starts to build up and then rules get built up. And then it's just one of the things that we stumbled across at, at Rackspace. And it's sort of before... I now think about it as, as taking the, the things that are great about agile software development and applying those to business. What we did at Rackspace is we had these small pods of people. And so that pod of staff would look after the same revenue value of customers. And we re-engineered IT Lab and Peer One around the same concepts later on. And so at IT Lab, it's really easy. We had, we had four chunks of revenue. We cut the customers up into four chunks of revenue. The top team, which I think was called yellow team, looked after only 10 customers. But it had the same number of people in as the next team that looked after 50 as the next team that looked after 150. And then that team of people has to do everything. And so it's back to that. that it now feels like a startup again. And there's clarity. And it's the most important thing today is what's most important for those 10 customers. And what did we do yesterday? And what are we going to do today? And how are we going to measure our success? That way, that team doesn't need managing. Yeah. So these managers, this manager bullshit. You know, what am I going to do? I'm going to tell you what to do. And as Bruce Daisley says, the inner, the inner mill owner in all of us comes out and we start <laughs> to tell people what to do. And the moment you tell somebody what to do, you've, what you've asked them to do is to stop thinking. You've told them that they're stupid and the thoughts that they have aren't relevant and that you are now the font of all knowledge. And then you, people say, well, my staff have stopped thinking. It's like, oh, no, they haven't stopped thinking. And they go home and they, they raise money, they buy houses, they decorate it, they bring up their children, they've got hobbies, and then they come to work and just made work an environment where they turn their brains off. And that's not their fault, that's your fault. And so, you know, how could you coach them instead of telling them what to do? Yeah, I wrote before you said it then in big capital letters, Agile. Because obviously Agile ways of working and Scrum methodology, et cetera, were kind of... Um, adopted by tech and particularly IT sort of 10, 15, 20 years ago or, or even longer than that. But there's been this interesting trend towards non-tech companies taking on agile ways of working and sometimes to varying degrees of success depending on whether they get the human side of that right. Because as you, know, as you alluded to, there's a, there's a kind of democratization of the decision-making process, but also there are kind of some threats within there where people feel, you know, when you just have product owner 
kind of a scrum manager and team, people get very nervy when they don't have defined roles and kind of defined titles. I'd just be interested in your, in your kind of experience where you're seeing companies adopt agile methodology in a way that works. And what are some of the cultural keys that underpin that? Well, I think one of the problems it fixes is it certainly as businesses, small businesses grow is of course they look around and say, who can we promote to be a manager? Cause being, a, having managers is part of their growing up thing. And what they do is they take their best salesperson or their best account manager or their best support engineer and they make them team leader. And it doesn't occur to them at the time. It occurs to them later when they realize that these people couldn't manage to save their lives, <laughs> that actually the job of managing is not the same as the job of being a functional expert. Mm. And one of my clients, Wi-Hi, was actually taking managers out. So they don't have any. I mean, there is a challenge because if you do the traditional HR staff engagement thing, the first question is, who is your manager? And if you don't have any managers, then the whole survey falls on its arse, which I think is funny. So, you know, take out managers and have teams. And, uh, you know, if there's six of you in an office, nobody needs to be in charge. If you can stand, you know, so what, what it ends up being, I think, is the things that people need to adopt are a daily huddle. Right. So that sort of 15 minutes, no more, get the team together. What did you say you were going to do yesterday? What are you going to commit to today? And, and what, what stocks have you got? And then the manager can get them out of the way. And I think then a weekly, weekly one-on-one. So there's some research that, uh, some work that came out of Cisco, which says, you know, your annual appraisal system is completely devoid of value. And in fact, if you got rid of it, everyone would get their time back. So there would be, there would actually be a positive if you got rid of it. Well, what do you replace that with? You replace that with weekly one, weekly check-ins. So you sit down with your manager or team leader or coach or whatever it is every week and talk through how you're making progress against your quarterly objectives and what you're doing well and what's not going well and what help you need. And so Cisco found that if you did those check-ins every week, they added value and engagement went up and productivity went up. And if you did them monthly, it was less good. And if you did them every six weeks, you may as well not bother because it was worse than not doing them at all. And so it's about, some of this is about rhythm. So weekly standups, weekly one-on-ones, weekly team meetings against progress against quarterly objectives and the annual the annual plan disappears and heaven forbid the five-year plan, which we just fucking made up anyway, goes out the window. So, but where are we going and how, how much progress do we think we can make in the next 13 weeks? And so the whole company moves onto this 13 week cadence. Where are we going to be in 13 weeks on the numbers that matter? What are the numbers that matter? And when we get there, let's celebrate success. And also taking the thing from the OKR framework from Google, Google, which is where you set a goal your goal is not to get to 100%. When you start, you don't know how you're going to get there and you don't know if 100% is achievable. And so 70% is okay, or maybe even 60% is okay. And so you get, you, you get out of the habit of having to set a goal and then sandbagging because only 100% is acceptable to we'd rather shoot for the stars and get to the moon than say we're going to go to the end of the street and get there. So it's about some of that challenging and pushing. But also you get to the same thing you get with when you're doing software development, different people have different ways of working, different speeds of working, different levels of optimism about how much work they'll be able to achieve. And, you know, the team have got to work out, well, you know, Zoe says she's going to do this by the end of the week, but, you know, we need to help her by saying three weeks on the trot, you didn't do that. You're probably not going to get there. You're probably going to be. And so then you get into some peer coaching and some difficult conversations as well, but it takes time. It's not a silver bullet. It can take, I think clients who start with this, it can take them eight quarters, you know, two years before, before it sort of 
embedded in the whole organization. One of the things I loved about what you said then is, is this idea of rhythms, not process. You know, so understanding that each team, each project might have a slightly different rhythm that they find to, that works for them as long as they're, they're productive rather than just having a standard process that works across the entire organization, which everyone has to be bashed into regardless of whether it's productive for them or not. And I guess one of the challenges, I say broadly within our industry, whether that be HR, L&D engagement, is that actually maybe that agile methodology needs a slightly different way of measuring what success is measuring yeah. what engagement is well it's interesting i was doing i was chairing a dinner the other week where one of the one of the things we debated was uh, remote working and here you, here we all are remote working mm-hmm. and so one guy said well we've we, we rolled it out and we've had to can it because people stopped doing any work and you just think you know i go into companies where everybody's in the office and they are still, despite the fact that they think they're not, they're still measuring effort by the fact that everybody comes in nine to five. Yeah. Because if you said to that, if you said to those employees, do you know what's expected of you every day? Can you at five o'clock say hand on heart that you've, because look, people don't spend eight hours working. They really spend about four hours working on things and the other four hours is sort of stuff around it. So does every individual in your business know what the four hours of hard in un, uninterrupted work needs to be and how do you measure it so quantitative and qualitatively at the end of the day can you say i did a good day at the office today and if you can, if they, if you've got the clarity on that and you've got a team holding you accountable because you've got daily huddles then actually you can probably do it wherever you like you can probably work wherever i mean there are some things where there might be reasons why you need people to work at particular times or to work from particular locations but i think when when stuff gets rolled out and doesn't work, it's because people, people had different expectations. I remember interviewing Liz, who's the head teacher of, she was the youngest head teacher of a primary school, Liz Robinson. And she said, look, in her first day, a teacher drag, dragged a pupil in and said, Miss Robinson, this child doesn't have to behave. And she said, the teacher wouldn't say the same thing about reading because they would know that teaching somebody to read is their job. Mm-hmm. And so behaviors and particularly behavioral change Let's, we've got to be really clear on the expectations and then we've got to teach people what these behaviors are because otherwise they will have a completely different set of expectations. So in this company's case, they said, you used to all have to work from the office nine to five and now you don't. And then management had one set of objectives and the staff had another and it didn't overlap enough. So they've canned it. And so I think that's where people completely missed the point. You know, those maybe that they shouldn't have done the whole organization. Maybe they could have done it team by team. The team have got to work out because if you feel that somebody else in your team isn't working as hard as you, like it's really corrosive. And so, you know, you've got, there's a whole load of stuff, not just is the work getting done, but is it the right work? And is it getting done enough by every person? But that's true whether you work remotely or whether you work in an office. And I think that's a really good point with that kind of scrum methodology and agile working. I think companies often treat it as a silver bullet, but forget the kind of human stuff that, that has to be dealt with, the behavioral part of it, the trust part of it, that has to be, you have to set those parameters for it in order for it to be successful. Otherwise, like you say, people have to know what's expected of them, right? Well, the other thing is that if you're working in a company because you think at some point you could be a manager in that business and that business says managers are no longer a thing, your career aspirations might go out the window. So even if it works for most people, there are some people it won't work for because you've now you've changed the rules. They joined and there was one set of rules and you've changed them all. A few years ago, I was working with a, a big Spanish bank and they decided to introduce uh, open plan offices and, you know, and, uh, and agile working. And 
banks generally, and particularly in Spain, are quite patriarchal and definitely hierarchical. So what suddenly happened was is that people had spent 20 years, 25 years, working to achieve that corner office with the big wooden desk were suddenly having that taken away from them because well we're democratizing everything and we're all equal now and obviously that creates a certain amount of yeah. resentment because it's that it's that threat piece is that this is what i previously defined success as or uh, define my own achievement as or define my role as and now it's been replaced with something that i'm, I'm not really sure of what the benefits are so yeah there's i think there is definitely it, some definitely some work to be done it's there. always always about the people yeah what is culture for you <laughs> Ah, I used to think, or I used to have, my own definition was that it was what people did when you weren't watching. Well, when nobody was watching. But actually, Liz and I did a a session for for a client. And her definition on the night was, it's the least worst behavior you're prepared to tolerate. So as another employee in the business, like what is the lowest bar? What, what, you know, what's the low bar? And you just think, I was just struck that that, that seemed more profound than mine. So I've, I've, stolen, I've stolen hers. Because then what you can do is culture can be an individual thing, right? Then it becomes this collection of what is the lowest, what, you know, what is the behavior that, the, the worst bit of behavior that people are prepared to tolerate for the whole organization. So it's, it then becomes a sum of the people, which is actually what culture is, I think. Mm. And so I quite like that. And, that. and that worked for me, not only as a definition, but also allowed me to think about businesses that I've started that went well or businesses I've gone into. And you just think, you know, you think what's broken here. And you're in a conference room and there's a broken chair and the whiteboard markers don't work. And you just know that everybody's prepared to tolerate that. Whereas in a great business, nobody would tolerate that. You know, somebody would throw the markers in the bin and just order some. There wouldn't be somebody's job. And that's what I think is really interesting is because... I think the people for whom the people who don't get it think that I don't know moving from a one to a ten point scale is linear, and the people who do get it realize that it's exponential. And so quite often I say to people on a scale of one to ten, how do you rate yourselves? And they say, oh, I don't know, seven or eight or something. And what they don't realize is that nine and ten isn't ten percent better. It's a hundred times better or a thousand times better, and it's it's a hundred or a thousand little actions done by every employee in the organization, and that you know that forty percent extra discretionary effort that they're not getting and they just can't see it because they've just never worked in a business that ran like that and if you've never worked in a business that ran like that then you know if you've just worked in a business that just sort of chugged along and was just a bit mediocre then your expectation is different i mean i remember we uh, some mates and i bought a boat we decided to get into sailing and bought a boat and we were only not last if somebody, like if somebody retired or sank or had a collision or got black flagged at the start, then we weren't last. But otherwise, we were just consistently last. I mean, we were having a good time, but it was shit. <laughs> and we said, look, we don't run our companies like this. This is ridiculous. So what I did is I went and got a spot on the boat that won every single race, every single season, so that I could see the difference between what happened on that boat. Because the boats were all the same class. So we had the same boats with the same sails. The only difference was the people. And the attitude of those people. And so we came back and we said, right, we've got to make sure that in terms of sailing, that we're the, that the three owners of this boat are the worst sailors on the boat, because otherwise we're never going to win anything because we need people who are way better than this. And that's what we did. And like, we didn't win lots, but we have, we did have some top 10 finishes and we did win. We did win a race at cows week one year. So it's the expectation or, or knowing that 
you should go and try and find out what it is that is different. Because if you're just in your business, the, the year that Rackspace won the uh, Management Today Service Excellence Awards, that year I sent 26 teams out to do benchmarking visits on other companies. Because there's loads of stuff we didn't know. And let's go and find some things that we could implement here in this business to make this business go faster. Like, so why, why make it all up? Go and just steal good stuff from other people. I was going to say, who, who shapes it then? Because you've talked about the people in the business. They're what kind of makes this happen because ultimately they're living it every day. It's not just the leader who's only doing it on their own. So then who shapes it? How does it come about for you seeing culture form? Well, I think that if we're clear about what's the purpose of the organization and, you know, what's our sort of, you know, 20-year BHAG. So we've got this sort of general direction and we've got a why, why do we do it? And we've come up with some core values and some behaviors. Then if people can come up with stuff and innovate stuff, like when you start to do that as the leadership team or even as the CEO, you've got to just keep leaning in and pushing the flywheel and all of the stuff that come, you come up with is you. And then one day somebody in the company goes, I've had this idea, it's this. And you go, brilliant. It's now democratized. Now I just have to make sure occasionally I might go, no, <laughs> yes, yes, lots of that, please. No, I don't like that one. But, you know, only with a light touch and only if you are absolutely this thing that somebody's come up with just makes no sense at all. Just mostly go with it. And so some of the stuff we stole was uh, dress up Friday. Right. So here we were as a tech firm, all wearing shorts and flip flops and T-shirts. So what? But everyone had a suit because they'd come in in their interview for, in a suit. So we did we did the last Friday of the month was dress up Friday and everyone had to come to work in a shirt and tie and a suit. And I remember I remember we came up with this idea and I, w I was in the lift going up in the lift in my suit. And I'm thinking. I'm not completely convinced that I'm not going to be the only one in a suit. I, I, I'm not completely convinced that this whole thing hasn't just been to have a, to, to, to laugh at me coming out the lift in a suit, but I walk through the door and there's everybody dressed in suits. It's like, Oh, isn't this funny? Just because that's funny to then celebrate that we don't work in a company that bizarrely wears suits every day. And one of the things that you were just talking about there was, was around that going out and seeing what other people are doing. Well, I know it's one of the, um, it was one of the kind of epiphany moments as I was a, a Padawan consultant was discovering um, the work by David Cooper Ryder around appreciative inquiry. You know, so the idea of going out and seeing what other people are doing well to see how you can do it well or better rather than just focusing on fixing potholes and, you know, and, uh, and plastering things up in your own organization. Well, the, what, what was funny is there was, there was an, in my experience, an unintended consequence of that. So, you know, I've always hired a load of graduates or we've hired people from outside the industry because the people who come with expert knowledge in the industry also come with the baggage and the bad behaviors, maybe from a larger, a larger competitor. And so you send staff out and you say, your remit is to go and visit this company and find some things that two or three things that they do really well and bring it back and somehow implement it here. But what happens is they go there and they say, oh, they were, really, they were really interested to hear about how we do X, Y, Z. So they're going to come and visit us. And because the thing is the staff, if you're in a business, you don't, it's a bit like fish don't know they're in water, right? You don't know that some of the stuff you do is amazing. It's only when you go and talk to other people about it that they go, that's amazing. And so what would happen is these benchmarking visits, yes, we'd get more stuff that we could do to make it better. But also the people who went on the visits would realize that actually 
they work in an amazing company. So they would bring that back into the business. And then we get people visiting us. And so that makes people feel really proud that, you know, we work in a company where people come and visit us to talk to us about the culture. And in terms of, God forbid, I'm gonna, we put all of ourselves out, out of business, but um, one of the things I like to ask is, in terms of kind of culture and cultural leadership, what's the one thing that organizations could be doing themselves without spending a fortune on consultants or bringing third parties in? Because quite often they bring you in when, and you often wonder, why aren't you doing it yourself? <laughs> I spent some time the other day with a client's cultural committee. They used to have a full-time HR director and they don't anymore. She wasn't a cultural fit with the organization. So, so the CEOs picked it up and, and the culture committee, a representative from each of their seven international offices is this group. And so, you know, what, what they were after from me was just some, what does good look like? What does great look like? Some ideas, some books to read, because they're super keen and enthusiastic. And so I think clients can, they can do a lot of it themselves. But also that sort of culture committee has to fit into the rest of the organizational framework. So, and if they, if they haven't already got a framework that makes that culture committee empowered to make changes, then it won't work. And I think that's a really important point you make, isn't it? That within, within that, within whatever framework, if people are being tasked with cultural change, there has to be a, a remit and a kind of, not even permission, that has to be remit, that they're able to make those decisions that are going to create that change. It can't just be a, a soft-touch HR piece. Yeah, well, and, and the, the moment they come up, so there's a good friend of mine, Henry Stewart, wrote a great book called The Happy Manifesto. And one of the things in there is every project is pre-approved. Because he says, look, you know, your boss gives you a job to do, back to management again, your boss gives you a job to do, you go away, do it, you bring it to him, and he improves it, or just says no. And so soul-destroying, pointless work. And so Henry says, the way, you, the way you fix that is you say, I'm going to give you a task. I don't know what the outcome is, but whatever you decide, we're going to do it. One of the things you have to put in place if you're going to do this, because otherwise what they do is this team is really enthusiastic. They go do some interesting stuff. They come back, and then you go, no. And so there's, that enthusiasm can die really quickly. And so you've got, to, you've got to be able to, as an executive team, say, right, whatever they come up with, we're going to do it. It's going to be scary, but let's just go with it because otherwise they don't have accountability. And so they don't feel the weight of that accountability. They can just go and throw any idea up until it sticks because you're going to make the decision. So you've got to, you've got to push down the decision-making process and the accountability to them, which might mean you have to give them some financial guidelines. What are the white lines on the pitch and what are the rules you want them to play by? But then that will help you codify that. And just another quick thing, which I thought I sort of did at IT Lab when we were doing this massive change, but kept on doing at Pier 1, which is new employees in your organization have a special gift because they see your organization in a way that the rest of us don't. You know, they see the water where the fishes don't. So what I would do there is I would sit people, I'd give people a black book. So I'd give them a, a moleskin book on day one and say, look, this is, here it is. I want you to write down all the stuff that you see that, you don't understand, that's odd, that's different, that you've seen done better. And then we're going to have lunch once a month. So I would have lunch with every new employee at least six times in the first sort of six to nine months. And we'd do it as a group. And we'd go, round Robin, what did you see? What, and since we last met, what have you seen that's different, odd, strange, that you want to have explained? It might be cultural, it might be product related, it could be anything, don't care. 
ask no stupid questions. But then I'd also ask everybody to say, what's the one thing that I'm going to, that I've seen that I want to improve that doesn't make my job better, but makes the whole company better. And so those new employees would each month have to have a task, which was to go away and identify something and fix it um, and then report back the following month. So you're building that muscle in new employees right at the beginning as part of that asking questions, finding things to fix, and then owning, fixing it so that later on, if they stumble across anything, A, they've met me six times, so they don't feel as though I'm the MD and I'm not approachable. So there's sort of an approachable transparency thing. And then there's a just, if you see something, go fix it. So we just sort of said, look, if it's under 100 quid, just do it, don't ask. So that was one of the things that we said to people. And then we'd, then we'd steal other things from other people. So one of the things we nicked was, if the technical people want training, bring your training, bring your vendors up and ask them for some training. And that's amazing. You're like, you know, you ring, you ring Cisco up and say, our oh, guys would like some training. And they go, yeah, no problem. We've got credits for that. You're like, okay, if we hadn't, that was because we went somewhere, saw somebody, that's what they were doing. They brought that back and you implement it. Or somebody said, oh, I don't know, we've got no furniture on the patio. Okay, ring our suppliers and see which of them will sponsor some sofas. And some of them said, yes. Uh, one guy said, look, there's no bananas on a, by Wednesday. There's no bananas. Mike, you know, this is you. And so I said, Mike, you're now in charge of fruit delivery so that we make sure that we have bananas all week. These are things that I would never fix because it's just like, I might've noticed them, but they're never going to be on my top 10, but every employee's got their own top 10 things that would make this a better place to work. So how do you just get them to say, okay, well, if there's a thing that's on your top 10, just fix it. Stop. Don't sit and think this company would be much better if just go. This company's great because I get to fix that. I'm pointing at you, Zoe. (laughs) (laughs) Last question. We're coming to the end of our podcast. Um, And it's back to to you, finding out what's next for for Dom. So what are your your next plans, Dom? Uh, I think I said earlier, I do a round table with a group of management, managed service providers at the moment. But those guys are sort of, those events are London and Milton Keynes and those guys are from all over London, all over the country. So one of the things we're going to be kicking off in October in the management lab is putting together a cohort of about 10 businesses, sort of sub 10 million revenue, and then running the scale up program for them. That's me trying to have a bigger impact on, on the businesses in the local business, local businesses and the local economy. And if we do it as a round table, then it'll make it, it'll make it, affordable as opposed to the sort of one-to-one coaching program and what we'll do is we're going to do that half a day a month with the ceos and then every quarter bring their leadership teams together so sort of 10 10 people at once a month and then every quarter maybe there's 60 people and so those teams it's back to the thing about learning from each other so then you know that ceo and his team get to see how that ceo and the other teams are implementing some of the tools the idea is that you then create a support network in down here in in, uh, in Hampshire and Wiltshire for small, fast growth businesses. Because one of them will say things like, oh, I need a new designer or I need a website or my lawyer sucks or I need a new banker. And, you know, we'll end up knowing that group of people will we'll end up knowing who the best of everything is locally as well as the scaling up stuff. And are the details about that on your website, Don? Uh, no, I'm working on them now. So they will be on the website, but they're not there yet. <laughs> and for those of you listening, we'll make sure that um, there's links to, to Dom's website uh, and to his podcast, which uh, I urge you to go and listen to. And then, uh, and then when Dom's updated his website, there'll be there'll also be some. 
<laughs> about that on there. Look, if, if, if people go to the website, there's a pop-up that pops up and says, look, do you want to get the newsletter? And if you do that, you get a, you get a newsletter, a non-sucky newsletter on a Friday. The idea of which is that there's a bit of work that I do. And then there's some stuff, some podcasts and some, some books that I recommend and some articles I found that I thought would be stimulating for people to read over Saturday or Sunday breakfast. And if you subscribe to the newsletter, then when we get the details of the roundtable, we'll push it out that way. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. As a token of your appreciation, it'd be fantastic if you could go wherever you're listening and leave me a review. Those reviews really help other people find this podcast. For all information relating to this episode, you can go to dominicmonkhouse.com forward slash podcast. And there you'll find some fantastic show notes, additional reading and links relating to this episode. You can also find my blog and the past editions of my subjectively not crap newsletter. The simplest thing to do on the website is to sign up and I'll update you each week on the most interesting articles that I've read on all things relating to scaling up high-performing teams, net promoter score, company culture, etc. For social, you can find me on Twitter, Dom Monkhouse, and LinkedIn at Dominic Monkhouse, although LinkedIn is probably the best way to reach me. Share your questions and comments and, and perhaps even recommend a guest for a future edition of the Melting Pot podcast. Thanks for listening.